Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. What an awesome God we serve. So glad to be in the house of the Lord. So glad that you are here tonight. Amen. Welcome in the name of Jesus. As, as you're standing, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, one of our children that come, uh, Rachel, her brother Liam is having surgery for an appendix tonight. So let's pray right now. God would touch him. And there's all some out sick as well. Let's just believe God to touch throughout the body of Christ right now. Jesus, you're our healer. God, we pray right now for Liam, Lord, that this would uh, be a surgery that would work well. And Lord, those that are out tonight because of the weather, Lord, we pray for them. Those that are out tonight who are sick, we pray for them. And we ask, Lord, that you would move and minister according to your word, doing a mighty work in this place in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God bless you. You may be seated. We're going to go ahead and dismiss our youth. Uh, to go ahead and go out. And of course, our children to uh, their different places. Some of the children are already out, but others will also be going out too. Amen. You love the Lord tonight? Amen, amen. Hope you brought your Bibles because tonight's going to be a Bible study. Amen. We typically don't put the scriptures up on the screen on a Wednesday night. Um, and if we did tonight, there'd be a whole, 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 whole bunch. So I got about 12 hours of Bible study. I'm going to try to cram into 45, 50 minutes here. So, yeah, 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 listen fast, you know. They, they, they told one preacher, they said, you know, preacher, uh, you know, we want you to preach as long as you want, but hurry up, you know. And uh, so I'm going to preach as long as I want, but I'll hurry up. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to start in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, and then jump over to the 10th chapter and then the 11th chapter. I'm just going to read a few verses to launch off our study tonight, and then we'll go into what the Lord wants to hear, or wants us to hear in Jesus' name. Welcome all of you online that have tuned in. Thank you for tuning in. God bless you. For all of you that are here, God bless you in the name of Jesus in person. We Bless you in the name of the Lord. Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. The children of promise are counted for the seed. Romans 10, verse 4. Just kind of flip a page or two over maybe where you might be. Romans 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And maybe another page, Romans 11, verse 5. Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And that last phrase, a remnant according to the election of grace, is my title for tonight and my subject. Amen. Let us pray. Father, let the living word preach the written word. Make my tongue the pen of a ready writer. 
Open our understanding that we may comprehend the Scripture. Cause every hindrance to be rebuked and cast out. Bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And Lord, as Jeff Arnold prays, help me to do a good job real fast. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Paul, the writer of Romans, was a born-again, one-God, apostolic Jew. Before his conversion, he was zealous for the law. He would have considered himself, as the Pharisees did, to be a disciple of Moses. And he would have thought and did think he was pleasing God by persecuting and killing those who claimed this new way of Jesus Christ. Yet after his conversion, Paul would write over half of the New Testament and would preach to those in prison as well as to those in palaces. And he would plant churches from Jerusalem to Rome and many places in between. Tonight I feel led of the Holy Spirit to walk through some scriptures mostly written by Paul, some of them in Romans and other places. And I, I, I feel compelled of the Holy Spirit to dispel a common myth about Israel and the end times. Let me take you back to 1832. 1832. A man by the name of John Nelson Darby has created a diabolical and damnable doctrine which he called dispensationalism. This heretical doctrine that he created would then give him the means to prove a triune Godhead and would create a pre-tribulation rapture for the church. By the way, something that had never before been heard of ever. Now I could spend a month of services going through all the false doctrines he created, but tonight I'm going to Try to deal with just one for sake of time. When Darby inserted a pre-tribulation rapture, it was the first time in history such a concept or term had ever been heard of or presented. Prior to that, from Jesus and his apostles through to even present day, there are and were Bible believers and preachers who teach and preach or taught and preached the post-tribulation truth. This means that the pre-tribulation doctrine is less than 200 years old and comes from the mind of an, unteach un an unteachable heretic. By creating a pre-tribulation rapture, Darby also separated God's church. Now the Bible says what God has brought together, but no man put us under. In Galatians 3, 19 through 29, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and Galatians 3, 11, we find that he's made one church. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. We're all one in Christ, right? So to pull that apart in a pre-tribulation rapture is to pull apart what God has brought us brought together. And by the way, if you do that, you make God a polygamist. Marrying multiple brides. In creating this heresy, Darby coined the term Gentile bride. It's not in the Bible, nor is the term or concept in the Bible. By going down this rabbit hole of false doctrine, Darby then created a false sense of security for a supposed Jewish bride, 
Again, another concept and term that's not in the Bible. Allowing them, them being the Jews, to be saved under a restored model of worship by the law of Moses. And that's the one I want to focus on tonight in, this, in the time that I have. Um, any one of these extra-biblical doctrines are cause for serious concern. But, as you've heard it described, when you tell one lie, you have to tell another to support that, and another to support that, and before you know it, you've got this web of lies. And so what Darby had to do was literally rewrite the Bible. In the infamous Darby translation, he changed, not just translated the these and thous out, he changed 268 verses in order to prove his doctrine. Uh, the Bible says if you add to the word, he'll add all the plagues to you. And if you take something away, he'll take your name out of the Lamb's book of life. It's exactly what Darby did. Now, Lord willing, we're going to get through three points tonight. And so I've asked the Lord to hold back the clock. It's going to be 716 for the next three hours. Amen. Just like Joshua had held the sun back. Amen. Praise God. Here's our three points. First, we're going to discover that the entire law was and is fulfilled in Christ. And to resurrect such a law is to then worship a dead, false, and idolatrous religion. Secondly, we're going to look deeper into Romans 11 and discover what it means when it says, All Israel shall be saved. When did this happen? And does Israel have a chance to be saved today? And finally, we will examine the everlasting gospel and why it is imperative that we never make any changes to it. We can change methods. If we want to go from blue chairs to gray, we can do that. If we want to go from carpet to tile, we can do that. If we want to paint the church purple with pink polka dots and yellow pinstripes, we can do that. I know Alicia probably wouldn't like that, but we could do it if we wanted to. If we voted and it was all voted in favor. But we cannot change the message. Amen. All right. Let's look at the first point. The law is fulfilled. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said these very words. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This is in his message, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. And it's very early in the Sermon on the Mount. And he makes it abundantly clear. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. I'm what the law pointed to. By the way, Romans 10.4, we read earlier, the complete Jewish Bible says it this way. For the goal at which the law or Torah aims is Christ. It points to him. In Luke 16, 16, the Bible tells us that the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, he says, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. In other words, John is going to be the last prophet of the Old Testament. It's going to end with him. It's going to, when, when Jesus says it is finished, the veil's going to be rent in twain and a new covenant is being established. In Luke 24, 44, after his death, burial, resurrection, and just prior to his ascension, Jesus says these words. He said, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms 
concerning me. This is after it's already happened. Of course, it's done. And so he can say that, right? So the law was and is fulfilled in Christ. Now remember Paul, the writer of Romans, bona fide, circumcised in the eighth day, Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, kind of Jew guy, right? right? Now converted, right? In Romans 13.10, he says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. How many of you know that the Bible says God is love? Well, I'm not stretching Scripture beyond its point. Love fulfilled the law. And when we love, how Jesus said, how will they know you're my disciples? If we wear the right clothes. <laughs> if, if we carry a card in our wallet that says we belong to, no. No. By loving one another as he has loved. Love fulfills the law. Galatians chapter 3. Now, I'm going to be in Galatians for just a minute, so if you want to open that up, Galatians 3, verse 10. Paul wrote Galatians as well. I want to keep reminding you how much this man would have known the law. We know he killed for the law and persecuted for the law, thinking he was doing the right thing because he loved it so much. Okay? Watch what he says here. Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law, and do them. In other words, it's going to be pretty hard for you, and he also says this in Romans, that if, if you offend in one area of the law, you've offended the whole law. It, it was difficult to keep because it was only meant to point to Christ. By the way, people that say that grace is easier don't understand the Bible. <laughs> In the law, you know, don't commit adultery. If you do, you're stoned. I mean, that's pretty cut and dry. But in, in, the, in the grace, you look on a woman and lust after her. You've already committed adultery in your heart. It, it's a lot different. Anyway, I don't have time to sidetrack myself. Stay focused, Myron. Stay focused. Verse 11. But that no man... Hmm. But that no man, it could also say no one, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. This is after it's been fulfilled. This is being written to the born-again church. This is just as relevant today in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. The law justified no one. Wow. Huh. Well, he goes on to say, it is evident for the just or the ones that are justified live by faith. In other words, how were they justified? By faith, not by the law. I mean, we could stop right there and we have our answer, but I still have 48 minutes or 38, 38. I'm doing my math here. Um, verse 12, and the law is not of faith. Wow. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. Uh, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Why does he do this? Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let me explain it this way. You've you got to catch this image, okay? Imagine if this side of the pulpit over here is Abraham being told he's going to be made the father of many nations. It's plural, and it means Gentiles. Abraham was never told he would father only the Jews. He was told he would father many nations. When Isaiah refers back to this, Isaiah says that the house of the Lord shall be for all people. Okay. Everybody got that? All right. The law, we're going to find out in a minute that the law came because of transgression. Or, if I can use this analogy, a detour. My wife posted yesterday, and if you've driven around Omaha, you're aware, it, it's like they're just wanting, and, and I think the joke is right. They figure out we're going on this road, they start working on that one. Yeah, okay. So, so the law came as a detour. It does not annul Abraham's covenant, but now the law's made because of transgression. The law came because of transgression. It, and, and we're going to read in just a minute, it doesn't annul Abraham's covenant. Instead, it does this. It points to the coming of Christ. And when Christ comes, Christ is the end of the law, Romans 10, 14. It's now over and the covenant with Abraham is reestablished. Does that make sense? Okay. That's what he's saying here. Look at verse 16. Or actually, verse 15 is what I just described. Um, but though it be a man's covenant, that being the law, yet it be, if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth it or add thereto. In other words, you can't disannul the covenant with Abraham. Verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. J Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and believed. This is John 8. And they're telling him, oh, you're, you, you're not yet 50 years old. How do you know Abraham? Before Abraham was, I am. Right? When did Abraham see the day of Jesus? Great question. In Genesis 22, when he takes his son to sacrifice him. And chronology tells us that at the time, Isaac was 33, the same age Jesus. And I've been to Israel. And the place where he was taking him was where Calvary would be. I believe God opened Abraham's eyes at that day and said, yes, it's Isaac in the natural, but it's Christ in the spiritual. Okay, you see now why I need a lot more time? Verse 17, and this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, wow, <laughs> it was already confirmed before. Ah. The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. In other words, even though the law came, it can't disannul what was made. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So, verse 19, wherefore then serveth the law? What was its purpose? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed. Who's the seed? Jesus. Till the seed come. 
to whom the promise was made. Drop on down to verse 24, if you're still in Galatians. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. When Moses gets the blueprints for the tabernacle, the book of Hebrews calls it the copy. That's where we get the term type or shadow. Everything about the temple, or the tabernacle rather, and of course eventually Solomon's temple, points to Christ. Uh, verse 25, but after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. Recently, you've heard me give the illustration that if we build a new church, right, we'll have a sign saying coming very soon. Once the building is there, we no longer need the sign. Once Christ has come, we no longer need the law. Are you seeing it? I'm not trying to be like, like you're dumb. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to make for sure. Okay, all right. Huh, let's see here. Um, Verse 26, for you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Uh, jump over to Hebrews 8.13 if you can, or if not, just listen to me, I'll read it. Hebrews 8.13 is speaking about uh, the new covenant that's coming. And, and in verse 13 it says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. That word old means obsolete. Now that which is decayeth and waxeth old, or is becoming obsolete, is ready to vanish away. What he's saying is, it's done, it's fulfilled, it's over. So, would you agree with me that the law has been fulfilled? And that Christ fulfilled it? And that justification by faith in our lives fulfills it. Well, then in Romans chapter 3, we also see uh, something that further proves our obedience to Christ fulfills it. Go with me to Romans 3.29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. He's no longer an exclusive God to a single ethnicity of people. And seeing it as one God, which shall justify the circumcision, that's Jew, by faith, and the uncircumcision, that's Gentile, through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish or fulfill the law. So when we exercise faith, if it's our, our initial experience where we're repenting and baptism in the Holy Ghost, we're exercising that faith in God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, right? And that he is a rewarder that diligently seek him. We're, we're fulfilling the law. And as we live by faith after that, and not walking by sight but by faith, and walking in the Spirit, we continue to fulfill the law. Hmm. Uh, Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise that we should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Why? Well, verse 15 says, because the law worketh wrath. Hmm. Therefore, verse 16, it is of faith 
that it might be of grace, or by grace, excuse me. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to also that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I made thee a father of many nations before him who believed even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. What Paul is arguing here is you're wanting to maintain a law, you're wanting to claim the children of Abraham, and yet there was no law when Abraham was given this promise. And it was given to him on the act of faith. Well, what was the act of faith? God tapped him on the shoulder and said, get up, leave your kindred, and go. Oh, okay. Now, of course, Pastor Trevor preached to us. He, he made a mistake slightly there in taking Lot. And, and once he got that figured out and once Lot was separated, the promise came back. And you know, But the point is, that was the act of faith. There was no law yet. It was his grandson, Jacob, who would have his great-grandsons who would eventually become the law, become the tribes of Israel. But it was well before him. Hmm. Have you ever heard uh, that scripture? You've heard maybe a preacher preach. I've done it, I know. And they say, you know, the world's getting worse and, and there's a whole lot of bad in our world, but where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You ever heard that? Any preachers ever said that? Any, any saints ever said that? Anybody online ever said that? Let me tell you what it really means. Romans 5.18. If you're in four, just flip on over one more chapter. Romans 5.18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, <laughs> grace did much more abound. What he's saying is, even though the law abounded, grace is greater. That as sin hath reigned unto death, you're going to find out here in a few minutes, I'm going to read to you from Corinthians, where it's called a covenant of death, and it's called a covenant of uh, a condemnation. Whereas the law reigned unto death, even so grace reigned through righteousness, Unto eternal life by Christ Jesus our Lord. It's, it's solidifying what we read earlier, that the law can no, justify no man. You can't be saved by the law. Let me also explain it this way. Now we know the reason Moses did not take the people in was because of his disobedience, right? The first time they needed water, God said, strike the rock. By the way, who was the rock? Does anybody know? Christ Jesus. Romans, uh, or, or excuse me, uh, I think it's, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that. That rock was Christ that followed him in the wilderness. How many times was Christ crucified? Once. He was struck once. It was typology. Even there. Christ is not struck twice. I believe the greatest reason Moses was judged because he broke typology. His anger at the people, they needed water. Bam! And he hit the rock the second time. God in His mercy said, I'm going to give them water, but you ain't going in. But there's another reason 
The law can't bring you into your promised land. Moses can get you to the Jordan River, but he can't take you in. The law can bring you, and, and, and here's what the law does. The law says, you're a sinner. You're bad. You're condemned. You did this and that. You're like, oh, yeah, I know. But grace brings you in to the promise and says, yes, but there's hope. If there were a, God forbid, if there were a fire here tonight, we have an exit there, there, there. By the way, Brother Chris, we got to fix those lights. I noticed them the other night, so just sidebar for a minute. So. But anyway, um, you know, we got ways out here, right? The law would chain the doors and say, good luck. Grace would say, over here, this is the way out. Does that make sense? Oh, okay. All right, all right. I got to hurry. Lord Jesus, I got to hurry. All right, Romans, uh, I just read that, okay. Uh, by the way, John 1, 17. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians 3. I told you I got a lot of scriptures. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 11. I hope this is okay. This is a Bible study, right? Oh, okay. I'm just making sure. Verse 6. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament... Not of the letter. By the way, the word letter, or the, the, yeah, the word letter there, means law. Not of the law, but of the Spirit. That's referring to the new covenant or to grace. For the law, letter, killeth, but grace, or the Spirit, giveth life. But if the ministration of death, and if you don't know what it is, the next phrase tells us, written and engraven in stones was glorious. Let me also explain it this way. When they left Egypt, that was Passover, right? He passed over them because of the blood, right? And it forever became a holiday that they celebrated, Passover. Make sense? Fifty days later, they're at Mount Sinai, which is Pentecost, when Moses is coming down with the tablets of stone. But they have thrown their gold into a fire, and as Aaron said, a calf just popped out. Sounds like a little kid. I don't know how it happened, Mommy. It just, you know, boom, it was there. You know, right, you don't know how it happened. You made it. You forged it. What's he do? He breaks those tablets. God kills 3,000 that day because of their sin. That's the, that's the first day of Pentecost. Isn't it really neat then in Acts chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost was fully come that 3,000 are born again? Amen. To any scholar going, 1, 2, 3, 4, 2,999, 3. Whoa, that's not coincidence. To any Jewish scholar comparing that, they just said, whoa, wow. The law came and it was death and the spirit came and it was life. Wow. On the same day. Lord, hold that clock back. Hold that clock back, Jesus. Amen. Now, verse 7, let's get back to it. If the ministration of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, and it was, it was so glorious that he had to veil his face, right? Okay, it was glorious. That's what it says here. But look at the last phrase of verse 7. Which glory, 
was to be done away. It, it, it was going to be a temporal glory. Every one of you have something in your fridge tonight that has an expiration date on it. The law had an expiration date on it, and it was Calvary. By the way, the Spirit has no expiration. Oh, that's why He pours it without measure. That's why it's called abundant life, everlasting life, and eternal life. The law had an expiration, but the Spirit doesn't. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Uh, verse 8, He then asks this question, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit, the New Covenant, the New Testament, how shall that not be more glorious? Right? Verse 9, for if the ministration of condemnation, law, be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. In other words, it knew something greater was coming. Uh, that's why John said to his disciples, I must decrease, but he must. What he was saying was, I'm the last prophet of the Old Testament. My glory is coming to an end, but that glory is forever. That's what he was saying. I know we quote that and we say, be humble, and it works and it fits, but the greater context is John recognizing exactly what Paul's saying here, that the glory of the law was coming to a close because the glory of the new covenant was yet to come. Oh, hallelujah. And notice verse 11, for that which is done away, that's the law, done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. So the law, temporal, the law because of transgression, the law in condemnation and death had glory. But once its fulfillment came, it's done. It's a footnote on the annals of history because now the greater reality has come. Let's take a look at Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Remember, the law is called the ministry of condemnation. We just read. Watch this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Watch verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Again, we quote that sometimes, and we say, don't feel condemned, and we're right in saying so. But the greater reason, the greater context, is because the law has been fulfilled, and we don't have to live in condemnation anymore because we now have a greater law, the law of the Spirit. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, once the law is fulfilled, worship 
of the law or practice of the law will no longer be accepted by God. It will become idolatrous, false, and dead. Allow me to prove it. Can you go with me to John chapter 4? John chapter 4, please. We're still on point one, by the way. I'm telling you, I'm going to have a revival of nothing but just teaching on this and be Secret Church 101 right here. Lord have mercy. John 4.21. You're going to recognize this when we read it, but I'm going to emphasize something that I did not see until last week. I was sitting in the Blair preaching point. Minister Kennedy was reading this. And man, it was like the Holy Ghost took his highlighter out and said, look at that. I'm like, oh. Watch. Jesus saith unto her, her is the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well. Right? Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain, Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. He's going to tell her in just a few more verses She's going to say, well, when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. And he's going to say to her, Alicia, the, the, the greatest reality of, of ever revealing himself, he's going to say to her, I that speak to you am he. In other words, I'm the Messiah. He's about to reveal he's a Messiah. He's starting his ministry. And three and a half years later, he's going to hang on a cross and cry it is finished and rise three days later out of a borrowed tomb. But right here he's saying... There's coming a day when it will no longer be about the law or about the way you interpret it here in Samaria. Instead, here's what it's going to be. Verse 23, the hour cometh and now is. In other words, it's imminent. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What he was saying was, it's not just for Jews exclusively. It's not just for Samaritans exclusively. In Acts 1.8, he said, you're going to receive power, and it's going to be for Jews and Samaritans and to the uttermost part of the earth. Ha <laughs> ha, hallelujah. And so if it's fulfilled, to go back to it, let me use my analogy of the building again. If we have the brand new building, we've had the grand opening, everybody's come, praise the Lord, the mayor came, all of that, and we've had a great first service, Lucas, why would we want to put the sign back up? Coming very soon. Wouldn't that be redundant? Wouldn't that be foolish? We're going to have a new building. Uh, you could imagine somebody coming up and saying, uh, you know, the sign's still up, but we can see that the building's here. I know, but look at this sign. Yeah, but the building, I know, but look at the artist's rendering. Isn't that cool? I know, but it's behind you. It's, it's, it's the fulfillment's there. I mean, how corny would that be? And yet that's exactly what the Pharisees did. 386 prophecies in the Old Testament of the first coming of Messiah. And the religious leaders did this. They examined every one of them. They examined all that he had done, healing people and, and delivering people and raising from the dead, and then had the audacity to call him a son of the devil. Your prophecies say it. 
I mean, they, and, they, and we know that they knew because they go to John and they say, are you that prophet? They're referring to Moses. Moses said a prophet's coming who will circumcise the heart of your flesh. Are you Elijah? They knew Malachi's prophecy that before Christ would come, Elijah would come. They knew it. Are you that one? No. Okay. They knew. And when they saw it, they chose not to believe it. They amassed all the information. You're the son of the devil. Wow. I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. When Jesus said it is finished, the veil was rent in twain from top to bottom. From everything I can tell and what I've studied, that veil was 13 inches thick and it was seamless. There wasn't a seam in between. It went from one side to the other seamless. 13 inches thick. And it rips from the top to the bottom. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but Jewish historians such as Josephus declare it, that behind the ark, which, or the veil was supposed to be the ark of the covenant, and it wasn't there. Now, if they're correct, I, I'm going to just... I can't say for sure because it's not in the Bible. I can say what's for sure in the Bible. But if, if Josephus and these others are right and there's no ark behind it, then that means that the priests and the Levites and the Pharisees have been perpetrating a lie. Wow. And there would have been some people to see in behind there. Hey, there's no ark. I, I thought you go in there on the Day of Atonement for us. That means they were already faking it. And as you've heard me say recently, in, the, in, in Exodus and in Leviticus, when the feasts are established, they're called the feasts of the Lord. By the time Jesus comes, they're called the feast of the Jews. Kind of indicating to me he ain't no longer accepting it anymore. It's become ritual. So once Christ fulfills the law, it's over. Uh, let's go to Acts 8. I'm going to have to come back and do part two, unless you want to stay another hour. I ain't looking at nobody, because I know some of you are like, well, doing a good job, Bishop, but hurry up. Yeah, okay, I hear you. Take your time, but hurry up, right? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> Stephen is, is being tried. Now, uh, excuse me, not Acts 8. I'm sorry, Acts 7. Acts 7. I apologize. Acts 7, verse 48. Stephen is being tried, and he's allowed to um, give his defense, okay? Um, and, and today we still have that same phenomenon, even in American jurisprudence. You can uh, defend yourself if you want to. Uh, it's not recommended, but, but it's allowed. If you want to defend yourself, you can. So he's allowed to defend himself. Listen to what he says here. I'm going to start at verse uh, 48. He says, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Now when he says this, a few verses later, they're going to get so mad, the Bible says they gnash him with their teeth. But it's beginning right here. 
Because he has just called them out and has said, you've made this temple an idol. That's exactly, and I'm not, I'm not misinterpreting or taking scripture. He has literally said, what house can you build the Lord? You, you think it's here? By the way, this is well after the fulfillment of Calvary. Right? This is Acts 7. Okay? He ascended in Acts 1. The Holy Ghost is poured out in Acts 2. The next chapter, the Samaritans are about to get it. And two chapters more, Cornelius is about to get it. Wow. Watch. He gets really bold. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Wow. But what he has just said here is you're still worshiping a God that is made up in your mind now. He already came. He already walked this earth. He already fulfilled the law, and you're still practicing it. You've made it an idol. So, Darby was dead wrong. The law will not be reinstituted as an acceptable form of worship. It might be reinstituted. Israel might rebuild a temple, but God will not accept it because he already fulfilled it. You say, Bishop, what's that got to do with the price of tea in China and all this? Well, I got seven minutes to go through point two and three real quick here. Let me try. In Romans 11, it says all Israel shall be saved. Okay? And if you just take that single phrase out of the verse and don't look at anything else, you're thinking, well, okay, of course, somehow he's going to bring them back around and save them all and do this. But you're missing the point. Because in the beginning of chapter 11, he references remnant theology. In the end of chapter 10, he has just said that um, Isaiah, David, and a few others prophesied that they're stiff-necked, they're, 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 they're not going to hear, they have ears to hear, but I, they can't hear, the eyes to see, but they can't see, and, and God is turning away from them and unto the Gentiles, and that all happened, we know that, right? And, and then he says, but did God reject Israel? God forbid, I, I'm, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. This is Paul writing at the beginning of chapter 11. Well, I'm of the tribe, of course he didn't reject it, because I'm one of them. And he re references Elijah. He says, y'all remember Elijah? Thought he was the only one that hadn't bowed his knee to Baal. And God said, no, you're not the only one. I got 7,000 in Israel that haven't bowed their knee. It establishes the principle of the remnant theology. If you read through the book of Isaiah and many other prophets, you'll find remnant mentioned again. Isaiah is the greatest. And he says this. He says of Israel, though your seed be as the sand of the seashore and the star of the sky, only a remnant of them shall return. 
When Paul quotes this in Romans 11, he says only a remnant of them shall be saved. Now we see this at the beginning of Acts. It says, of all the tribes of Israel, they were present. Acts chapter 2, right? They were all there. And at the end, it says, and as many as believed. That means some didn't. As many as believed was the remnant that nudged their brother and said, he's right. We crucified him. He was the Messiah. But, Sister Jackie, there were others saying, I don't believe this. I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. Yeah, whatever. Preach on, Peter. You're nuts. And that's exactly what happened. A remnant was saved. And that's what Paul is referring to in chapter 11. So when he comes back around, by the way, in between the first part of Romans 11 and the part that I quoted near the end, it's, it's called the olive tree uh, uh, you know, symbol or, or theology or lesson. And what he says is Christ is the olive tree, right? And he breaks off the natural branches, which is Israel, and then takes a remnant and grafts them back in, but then he grabs unnatural branches, that's Gentiles, and also grafts them in to the single vine. This matches Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, which mentions that there's one church. And it's not about Jew and Gentile anymore. It's about being in Christ, the vine. Then he comes around and he goes, and in this way all Israel shall be saved. And he quotes Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah says a new covenant is coming, where the law is going to be written on their hearts. Not like the law, not like the old covenant, but it'll be a new one. And Jeremiah gives this interesting prophecy. I'll send you my notes because I've got to run through this. You can, you can take and look at the scriptures later. Jeremiah gives this interesting prophecy that says, if, if, if the sun, the moon, and all this can trade places and, and not do what they're supposed to do, then my covenant with Israel is over. When Amos gives the same prophecy, he says that at noon the sun will be darkened and the feast will end and, and, and references that, that this, the covenant is coming to an end. Okay? So you have these two prophecies. By the way, also David mentions, I think it's in Psalm 78, about the sun and moon trading places. In Luke 24... 23, 44, it says that while Jesus is on the cross, at noon, the whole earth was darkened until 3 p.m. It's then when the sun comes back out that he gives up the ghost and says it's finished and the veil is rent in twain, fulfilling Jeremiah and Amos and the covenant of death was over. And 50 days later, the covenant of life would be poured out. Darby presented that what would happen is this supposed Gentile bride would disappear. It's why you see all the Christian movies where you blink and there's a pile of clothes. Where'd they go? Well, that's because he created a secret rapture which the Bible doesn't talk about. And, and then over here, God comes back to restore the Jews, which is wrong because Hebrews 9.28 says he comes once, not twice. So already we're in error. So he comes here to save Jews who, according to Darby, 
have rebuilt the temple, are practicing the law, and through that have been saved. Well, I've just shown you a plethora of scriptures that completely deny that. Here's the thing. Can Israel be saved today? Absolutely. The same way we're saved. The gospel works in Africa. It works in Asia. It works in the jungles. It works in the urban centers of the world. It works in Russia. It works everywhere. It'll work with the homeless. It'll work with the wealthy. The gospel works. And in Revelation 14, 6, it's called the everlasting gospel. Isn't it neat that John 14, 6, Revelation 14, 6, John 14, 6, 14, 6. Isn't it neat that John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, singular, the truth, singular, and the life, singular. There's not going to be another gospel. That's why Galatians said, uh, though we or an angel from heaven preach to you any other gospel, let him be accursed. And then Paul says it again. He repeats himself in the very next verse. I'm going to say it all again. Let him be accursed if he does this. There's not another gospel. Well, there, that was point two and three wrapped up real fast here. And I'm a little over time, but give me just one more minute here, okay? There have been some people say, well, we worship the same God as the Jews. I disagree. Because by and large... If they're not Messianic Jews, they're worshiping a God that they think has yet to be fulfilled. They're still looking for the Messiah. Jehovah became Jesus. Yahweh became Yeshua. Amen? So beware. Lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, Darby. After the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. You ain't going to find it in the law. You won't find it in Allah, Buddha, or anywhere else. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So the remnant, according to the election of grace, are born again of the water, baptism, and the Spirit, Holy Ghost, in Jesus' name. By the way, when Jesus first says that in John 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, a Jew. Stand with me. I have one more scripture to tell you why I have used this tonight. And thank you for letting me go a couple minutes over time. In John 8, 24, this is why your bishop, besides what God told me to do, I've got to obey him. This is why your pastor tonight felt to preach this. Because Jesus Christ said this in John 8, 24. Speaking mainly and largely to Jews at that time. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. They may re be, rebuild a temple. I'm not going to argue that point with you. If they do, great. If they don't, it don't matter. Because God will not accept it. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we want to know the truth, and we want it to set us free. You told us over and again not to be deceived, to beware of false prophets. Lord, it was the very first thing that came out of your mouth when the disciples asked you about the signs of the times and of your coming. So I pray that you would give all of us a double dose of discernment of the Spirit. Give all of us, Lord, that anointing, that unction of the Holy Spirit that causes us to be able to discern between truth and a lie. Give all of us a sense of urgency for your word to believe that you are who you said you are and to hold fast to that faith in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. God bless you in Jesus' name.